Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? Let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have just begun chapter 3, which Wolf Mueller titles, How Bad a Boy Are Ya? And we have... Uh, We've spoken very briefly about this thematically, that the importance of how one views sin can really set the stage for one's entire theology. If sin can somehow be overcome by the human being, and the human or the human being could make atonement himself for sin, take the uh, the credits and debit sheet, credits of good works and debits of sins, and somehow balance that himself, then what need would there be for Christ? No need. No need. So it's a big deal, because how we perceive sin is how we're going to perceive our Savior. Now, of course, it's, it's, you can start on either side of the coin. You can move from Jesus to sin, from grace to sin, or, as we're doing today, you can move from sin to Jesus, from sin to grace. I do want to point out to, the, to those of you who may be brand new to Lutheranism or tracking online and you're wondering, what is this Lutheran stuff? I want to point out um, a book, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. You can pick this up on Amazon or ConcordiaPublishingHouse.org. And... Uh, Inside this book, you'll find a document. This is a collection of the documents from the 16th century that really define what it means to be a Lutheran. And one of those documents is the Formula of Concord. And in the Formula of Concord, Article 1 is on original sin, which is our really our topic for today and Wolf Miller's topic for today. So if you want to do a deep dive or if you tend to be a little bit more academic or historic in your approach to theology, you can, you can take a look here at the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, Article 1 on Original Sin, and get it, uh, get it straight from the garden hose, if you will, right? I simply wanted to make that comment um, so that you had that resource available to you. Now, we left off on page 58, and we're, again, Maybe just to summarize, it would be good look at the uh, look at the subsection how original how original is sin, or how did things get this bad? But what I'm going to ask you to do is jump to the previous paragraph so we can refresh our minds. Okay, of course, Wolfmuller's opening point in this chapter has been that Christianity softens the Bible's teaching on sin, and then he connects the dots for us to these other themes he's introduced, revivalism, pietism, mysticism. So that previous paragraph, revivalism, 
which necessitates that the unbeliever make a decision for Christ requires a free will. Pietism, which expects me to find comfort in my own good works, assumes my ability to accomplish good works. Mysticism assumes I can stand face to face with God, so there must be something good or noble left inside me that can withstand the holy presence of God. All right, so you can see then how this chief underlying theme of being soft on sin then manifests itself in the core idea within each of these, revivalism, pietism, and mysticism. All right, so that will serve to recontextualize us to where we've been and where we're going. And now on to the subsection, uh, how original is sin or how did things get this bad? Wolf Mueller writes, one of the worst sentences in the Bible is Genesis 3.8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Wolfmuller writes, This is not how things should be. When Adam and Eve hear the sound of the Lord God in the garden, they should want to run to him and fall at his feet, laughing like children who hear their father coming home from work. Adam and Eve should delight to be in God's presence, to talk with him, to spend the day learning from him, to rejoice in all the gifts of creation. There should have been peace and joy and love between Adam and Eve and God. Adam and Eve were created by God and set in the Garden of Eden in order to rejoice in the Lord's gifts. They were to eat of every tree but one. They were to have dominion over all the living things. They were to see that the earth brought forth life. They were to rejoice in one another to have a large family and fill the earth. Most of all, Adam and Eve were to rejoice in God. There should have been no greater joy than the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And we might add to this, too, some reflection on the nature of God's statement that all of the trees I have given for, to you for food, only one tree there is of which you shall not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Ironically, I find this deeply ironically, in fact, is we read this almost as if God is holding out on them, holding out on us from the very start. Now, why is that ironic? Because that's exactly what the devil says God is doing, and you can see that the poison of that lie still remains native in our flesh. What would be a more objective, accurate, and truthful way to understand that? That this too is a gift. God sets forth the gift of one tree and the gift of the word, no. 
What could we discern from that one tree and that one word? Luther, and I don't think he's the first to say so, says you could discern everything the Bible teaches and infinitely more from that one tree and that one word. Okay, well, how so? Think on a very basic level. What does that show us that God says no and we would have to listen? Well, it shows that we're creatures and he's the creator. It shows that he knows what's best for us and what's best for us is sometimes yes and sometimes no. What else do we learn about God? That of the virtual infinitude of creation, particularly as it proceeds through time, and the virtual infinitude of all of his gifts, he just says no in one place. So what is his default attitude toward us? Gracious abundance and yes, and what is it you want? Let me fulfill and do beyond your wildest dreams. And only in this one way will I say no, and I'll say no to you be precisely because it's for your good. And just as you trust me in all these other things, I'm going to ask you to trust me in this. You know, So it is a gift. It is a profound gift that God gives. He's not holding out whatsoever. I mean, even in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no, don't. Of course, we'll be so constituted that that will be unthinkable even within us, and there will be no possibility of repeating the fall, thanks be to God. What's our proof for there being no repeat of the fall? No, no tree of good and evil? Well, <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. I think, I think simply the words of Christ that promise eternal life he couldn't promise that if there'd be a possible way for us to botch it. <laughs> so the teaching of the church from really the dawn has been that there is no way to fall after we're in the new heavens and the new earth. All right, but from this tree then, and from this word of God that attaches, that God attaches to it, um, we ought to see God's continued blessing a gift and fatherly provision. Luther says, from this, he actually says that's why Adam and Eve were there in the first place that day in which they had fallen. He, and again, he follows, a Luther, he being Luther, and he follows a long train of church fathers in this, believe that Adam and Eve were there on the Sabbath, and that it was precisely that, that day of rest that God had already given and instituted. Um, in that day, they gathered around the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in the midst of the garden. And this was church. This was church. And so what were they doing? They were there reflecting on the word that God had spoken. They were reflecting on be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, lordship over the earth. They were reflecting on, but do not eat of all the trees of the garden, but not this one. They were reflecting on these things when in slithers who? The world's first false teacher. Yeah. yeah. It's a great take. It's a great take. And um, if, you, if we ever have opportunity to study um, the first volume of Luther's lectures on, uh, on Genesis, it would be great um, because he touches on all of these themes. So what we see then is God is good and gracious and giving, and that is his default period in all the multitude of his yes, but then also even in his no. And so we can see then our rebellion against God in this light, and I think receive it more accurately. 
Let's pick back up with Wolfmuller. Um, we are on the second full paragraph on page 59. But Adam and Eve run and hide. Scared for their lives, they are in the bushes, holding their breath, hoping the Lord won't find them. They had eaten the fruit. They had broken the universe. They had undone the goodness of God's creation with their disobedience. The sound of Adam's teeth crunching into the fruit was the sound of a million deaths. So the sound of God walking in the garden was the most fearful thing Adam and Eve would ever know. They should be afraid. They are naked, ashamed, and doomed. And we are doomed with them. This is the day they died, the day they listened to the voice of the devil, the day they doubted God's word. Adam and Eve stood as judges over the Lord's command. Instead of believing God's word, that on the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, they believed the words of the devil. Unbelief came first, then death. By the time Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they were already dead. And so were you. All right, we're going to continue on with that thought in just a moment. But let's, let's, take, let's take a second to go through this text once more. This is the day they died. How so? How so? Doesn't the scripture say, at least in the case of Adam, that he lived centuries longer than that? In what way, in what way did he die? spiritually, in the same way that Paul speaks in his letter to the Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, this, this, will, this is one of the many ways that theology will radicalize and, and change your whole view on the world in the sense that, what was that movie, The Sixth Sense? Remember the famous line from it? I see dead people. So, we, so, when you go out into the world and, and you see the unbelieving world, it would be more proper to say, I see dead people. I see people dead in their trespasses and sins. And so was I myself until the Lord Jesus resurrected me spiritually through his word and spirit, giving me new life, baptizing me, burying me with him, and pulling me up out of those waters so that I may walk in newness of life with him. And so when God gives the gospel and sets it upon our lips that we go out and, and uh, proclaim that gospel to those whom God has put in our life, it is an incredible thing that we are doing. The picture there, the picture there, Remember in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones? And God doesn't just say, hey, Ezekiel, watch this. God raises up his arms and all the bones stand. No, what does he say? He says to the prophet, prophesy, speak to the bones. And as Ezekiel speaks, the bones rise and the bones take on flesh and the bones live. It's all through speaking that this resurrection happens. So too, as we share the gospel, we are speaking that life-giving word that has the power to raise the spiritually dead. 
And that is, that's the incredible joy and privilege of getting to speak God's word in our vocational lives as we are participating in God's creative act. In fact, an act that Augustine says is even greater than the original creation. Because you go from, you go from nothing to something. And Augustine says, as, as majestic and wonderful and inconceivable as that is, to go from something ruined to something restored is even greater. And so we are participating in this new creation. Not only have we received it and are we new creations in the Lord, but then that new creation propagates and spreads through us. It's an incredible and unspeakable privilege we have. I know it can sometimes feel demoralizing or like you're inadequate, but I, I fail to see where God in his word communicates this to us in such a way that we should ever feel those feelings. I think rather those are the assaults of the devil. God, God gives us these things, Christ gives us these things for our joy, so that our joy may be full, so that we can simply spread lavishly, even carelessly, like our Lord Jesus himself, like the sower with his seed. You know, he doesn't care, he's not over there like, okay, I'm going to have to tuck that one in. Oh, it didn't sprout up. That must be my fault. I must have done the technique wrong. No, it's just everywhere with the word of life. And we're given that same freedom, that same joy to be reckless with God's word of, of grace in Christ and to just spread it, to just spread it. So this is a, this is a beautiful thing if we understand, if we understand all the way from the root that the second Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, they were already dead in their trespasses and sins. And then same with our entire race. Now we often think about this in too individualistic a manner. Well, how is it that Adam and Eve as individuals could do something that affects me as an individual? That's not fair. Right, if we grant the premise, that's not fair. But is that in fact who we are as human beings? Is that in fact our ontology, the way in which God has made us? Are we in fact individual units floating out in time and space? And the answer to that is no. The premise is wrong. What it means, I, I think that this phrase, it even comes from the pagans, and it's, it's right, um, in a profound, in a much more profound sense than even they mean it. One man is no man. There's no such thing as an individual human being. We are all one in Adam. That is our ontology. If the head fails, so does the rest of the body. It is, it is an organic lens through which we need to see the fall of Adam and Eve. They were our head. They were our best. They were better than you and I would ever be. And they fell, and thus also we fall with them. We are all one whole. Okay. And so you can think, you know, as it goes for the seed, so it goes for the entire plant. That's a more accurate way of viewing it. Frankly, it's a more accurate way of viewing humanity. God's creation of man is like a plant that comes from a seed. You can talk about this individual leaf or that individual branch, but there's no such thing as an individual leaf or branch in and of itself. It all naturally flows from the organic whole, which which is that seed. And so if, 
If the seed gets poisoned, the plant is going to be poisoned, and that's precisely what we see. So the so the question of like, well, how is that fair? Is is frankly a categorical mistake, a categorical mistake. It's based on the false premise and assumption that we're all individual units when we clearly are not. Okay, I'm seeing a hand, so let's let's go ahead and pause. Are we running a microphone today? I think you're getting to it, but my friend and I have had discussions actually this week about what you're talking. If you're a lukewarm Christian who has recently been awakened uh-huh. and you're finding that your increased piety has had an equal response in increased torment and temptation mm. and trouble, I mean, so if what you just said is now we're part of a body and we're not out there on our own, is there a standard, uh, a typical ordered process that Christians might go through from the terror conscience to the troubled conscience to the comfort? Is there something we can expect that's pretty typical or is it you just got to make your way through? Yes, I don't find any patterns typical. I find a I find a spectrum and kind of an astonishing spectrum, one that causes me to marvel a little. Some some people um, become Christian and it's like the best and easiest thing ever, and it by all appearances, by their own accounting, it seems easier. And in some respects, it seems like maybe their life has gotten better. And that's where I think we have to be a little careful with just kind of, I mean, I'm guilty of this. In fact, I kind of preached it this way earlier this morning is, you know, if we preach too much in a ham-fisted way of Christianity brings your best life now, you can, you can cause someone to question the legitimacy of their faith. Like, am I not suffering enough? What's wrong with me? You know, kind of thing. No, God, God graces, uh, some of us with a relatively easy road. And others within the, within the history of Christianity, of which I'm hardly even worthy to speak. I mean, as a, as a pastor living here in America in the 21st century, the intensity with which, uh, the demonic afflictions and afflictions through man come upon them acutely and precisely because of their Christianity. You know, not just, not just the minivan got a flat tire, but, um, you know, the devil's really after me. And so I do find more often than not that after sort of this, this period of grace where, where the Lord sort of nests you and keeps you safe, whether this is the beginning of Christianity or whether this is the beginning of kind of a re-resurrection or rebound of your faith, there's like this little period, and then and then the Lord Himself allows the affliction to come, precisely because that's how faith is grown. Remember the remember the tree that isn't bearing fruit, um, and the master says, "I'm going to come and cut it down." And what is what is uh, what does His servant say? What does the master's servant say? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me dig around, and then what's he going to put there? Fertilizer. Fertilizer. Ah. We all know what fertilizer is. So, so if God's going to make us fruitful, what is what is He going to pack around the tree? Fertilizer, and that is very frequently how we misunderstand Jesus and misinterpret the events in our life. Like, I became a Christian. Why is it so miserable? I am a Christian. Why is it so miserable? I've taken a great turn or step in my faith. I'm taking this word. Why is it more miserable? And and yes, of course, it's the assaults of the devil. But that doesn't quite get us far enough, I don't think, because we need to reflect on the fact of like, well, why is God allowing this? 
Um, he is allowing the devil and the, and the afflictions and the assaults that befall us precisely as the servant of the master comes and packs manure around the branches so that that tree will bear good fruit. And it's ironically, it's precisely through this action of Christ that we begin to bear fruit. And the beauty of that fruit is it's, it's almost a reluctant fruit. And it's almost an unconscious fruit in many instances because it's not, it's not the kind of fruit where you go, I today, as a Christian, strong in the faith, will go out and do good works. Let me write down three of them. I mean, you know, that's, that's not really how it is. It's not really how it is. I mean, God be praised wherever there's good works, okay? But, but in real life, it's not like that. And the work that God does is much more subtle, isn't it? And written into us. And the fruit much more organic. And the fruit sometimes comes in such a way that we don't even know it's fruit. Sometimes we can't even perceive its beauty, though other people can. Um, and it's the kind of fruit that only comes if manure comes first. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I, I, hopefully that speaks to that, to that comment and, yeah, yeah. What, what about time? What about time? I mean, oh, in the garden. there's the mic. Okay, there's the mic. Okay, what about Please. time? They're in the garden. The longer they're in the garden, would have, would have made a difference in their unbelief or, I mean, if they were there a hundred years, a thousand years, like they know God's purpose. So would time make a difference? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? And, and here I think we run into, at least I ran into this, um, as I was studying Luther and some of the church fathers on this question. Again, they perceive things very differently than we do. Because we, and Christians, maybe we don't even believe in evolution, but we're so steeped in the evolutionary way of thinking that we unwittingly import that into the biblical text and we think like this. Adam and Eve were just naive little children. And since then, we've developed so much more than they, right? Uh, the church fathers viewed it entirely the opposite. Adam and Eve knew more than all of us together collectively, and overall, the human race is growing dumber. <laughs> less, less spiritually capable, weaker. And they, and they even remark it like this. It parallels the earth and, and the cosmos itself, that everything is wearing out like a garment. Remember that in Isaiah? That includes... That includes like, so we just think of this in terms of individual because we're so individualized, so egocentric. So it's always like, yeah, I'm getting old, you know. Okay, fine. That's right. But you're only part of a tapestry. The whole of the human race is getting old. Like, like corporately, the whole of the human race is getting old. The whole of the world is getting old. Everything is wearing out like a garment. Everything is getting worse. So the view of, the view of, um, the, the church fathers is Adam and Eve in the garden knew way more than we knew and they knew exactly what all of this was. And you know, sometimes we, we are like, well, they didn't even know what death is. How's that fair? No, they knew, <laughs> they knew what death was. They had a much more intuitive and an innate sense of what death was than even, than even we do. We have to learn it from the scriptures, what they knew innately and naturally. So it's a, so it flips all of that on its, on its head. So then the questions, you know, the church fathers never really wrestle with those questions of like how old or, you know, how long, you know, and these kinds of time questions, if that would have had any effect, say they were already above and beyond us and they fell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Good comment. All right, so we're seeing the fall more accurately now. We're seeing it as a holistic fall. And by the way, by the way, if, if we see ourselves using that analogy of, of the seed, 
Adam and Eve are the seed, and from the seed comes the plant, and, and the whole thing is, is poisoned and, and you know, filled with disease and fruitless and subject to death. How on earth do you ever restore that? Well, you have to have a new seed. And we have to be brought into that new seed and become members of that new seed so that when it blossoms forth, it brings forth a new plant and um, a plant that is wholesome and good and fruitful. And that's precisely one of the New Testament explanations for who Christ is. He is this new seed that goes into the ground, remember his death and burial, and rises forth, bringing forth a new plant abundant in life of which we are part, a new humanity. Now, when you take this out sort of the outside of the agricultural language and you put it in the language of human beings, um, this is the language Irenaeus used for it. It is a recapitulation. Okay, capitus head, right? The capital of your state is the head, um, city of your state. So recapitulation, a new head. So Adam was the head of the old fallen humanity. We must have a new head, as the scriptures call him, a second Adam, a new Adam from which we all proceed. How do we, how do we come members of this new head, this new Adam, this Christ? Baptism. Bingo. Baptism. That is precisely how we are born anew. No longer born in the image of fallen Adam, but born into the image of Christ through the waters of holy baptism. Born again of water and the Spirit, a new creation and members of a new human race. And so now we can see these themes which are really so expansive in Old and New Testament scriptures coming to their fullness. Yes, please. Um, Sorry, Barry, to have you exercising um, right up front here. Um, what I see that when the new seed was planted and the new uh, plant grows and God put a lot of fertilizers, but uh, with that, with those fertilizers, while we're growing and growing older and older, is for us to learn uh, to trust and to live by faith. Because the older we get, the more uh, we more incapable yes. to do things, and we, you know, at the end of our lives, we are practically. We have to depend 100% on God. I could write chapters on this. You're exactly right. And this is why God's designed it in such a way. Have you noticed the, the cyclical nature of the way in which we age? I, you can even see it in something, I mean, again, it's a little maybe ethnicity dependent. I don't know, but you can even see it in something so simple as your hair. My kids were born with jet black hair. That, that hair transitioned into the blondish color it is now there there's a there, in your uh, this is a little bit of a digression but i think it'll tie into the larger point so pardon me but there is a there is a springtime of hair that gives way into a summertime of hair that gives way into a fall time of hair where the leaves are changing color that gives way into a winter time of hair where things start to get very sparse and white 
<laughs> those seasons are written upon our, upon our own heads. And, and so is, so is our mortality. And then, and then a similar kind of thought. Um, my proof text for all of this, by the way, would be Ecclesiastes. Nothing better to give you these, these paradigms than Ecclesiastes and the wisdom therein. But our lives are like this, right? You start in a diaper with someone feeding you. And you might end up that way, too, if you live long enough. Um, but there's a whole arc there. As you go through adolescence into adulthood, there's a second adolescence. Some of you who care for your older parents have experienced that. There's a second adolescence, and then it goes down into infancy once more. It is fascinating from an existential first-person experience of this, and it's one of the th- one of the things that I've be- begun to process myself too. Because you know, yeah, well, <laughs> um, you uh, it, God God gives you all of these things, and He teaches you that he, that He is your God and He is good, and He will give you what you need when you need it. And then and then the latter half is, am I still your God? Am I still good when I begin to take these things away? And it goes deeper than, than this, doesn't it? Because it's like my meaning, my purpose, the people who need me, my relationships, my vocations. Is he still my God? Is he still good? Can I still trust him when layer by layer, piece by piece, he strips it all away? I mean, here now, Job is our book of wisdom and reflection for this, isn't it? The Lord gives. Now, let that give spread out over your entire life. And the Lord takes away. And let that spread over your entire life. Let the give be the first half of your life. The take away be the second half of your life. Think of it in all these different patterns and forms. And then what is the conclusion? Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you comp- when you begin to comprehend and see these things, then um, ultimately the core the core is the death and resurrection of Jesus, in whom we are reincorporated ourselves. And so that that idea of death and life and death and resurrection um, woven through all the various themes of our life, um, such that our identities are truly in Him. And when you start to grasp this fully, then I think, and I'm not there yet, but then I think you can start to think and speak the way of the apostles, the way of James and Paul, when they say, count it all joy. Reckon it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials. Okay. Um, that's the fullness of maturity because what, you, what you're recognizing is that God's hand is not present only in ostensible blessings, but also in ostensible anti-blessings, <laughs> curses. But you see his purpose in them. That as the, as the, as the potter molds the clay, giving taking away. So God is molding us and we are his workmanship being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus into an abundance which is simply unimaginable. Simply unimaginable. If we could see who and what we are as the sons of God for all eternity, we could hardly even believe it. Because the difference is the difference between us and this life right now, a seed. And what we shall be is an oak. A cedar of Lebanon. What we are right now is in utero, 
compared to what we shall be in the fullness of our adult form for, for all eternity. This is why Paul speaks in these ways that these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory. And though the, the outer man perishes, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And these uh, light and momentary trials and tribulations will give way to an even greater and eternal glory beyond our dreams. And so that's where we are entrusting ourselves to God and trying to understand ourselves and our life in these ways. And the way, maybe the number one way to do this, is to dig into the Word of God, to be willing to let go of our own thought paradigms and see what the Word of God says and then begin to believe that and, and begin to understand that. And this is one of the profound ways in which we can do that, to realize that when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned. When Adam and Eve went into spiritual death, we all went into spiritual death. And when spiritual death has comes to full maturity, it's physical death and eternal death. Okay? And that is our inheritance in Adam. So to be reborn into the family of Christ, with Christ as our Adam, with Christ as our head, we become a new human race and our inheritance changes. Our inheritance is life eternal life, and the blessings of seeing God face to face, being conformed into the image and glory of his Son. All right, pardon me for the digression, but there's just simply so much here to unpack in these words and in these thoughts. Um, we, can, we can go just a few lines more, because I think there's a little more to unpack. Nothing nearly as lengthy, but a little more to unpack in these words. So once more, from the top, the third paragraph that we find on page 59, this is the day they died, the day they listened to the voice of the devil, the day they doubted God's word. Now, I'm going to, as, as you know very well from a recent sermon that I preached, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick just a little quibble here because I've got no problem speaking generally. So this is no condemnation of, of what uh, Pastor Wolfmuller has written. But as you, as you take the, the magnifying glass and zoom in on this statement, it is slightly more accurate as Genesis 3 bears out, to say that Eve's particular sin was that she listens to the words of the devil rather than the words of uh, God. And Adam's particular sin is that he listens to the words of Eve rather than the words of God. Important to get that right because we're going to, our, our, our ability to see and understand who Mary is and who Jesus are and the beautiful symmetry that God paints before us of how of how woman falls and man through woman so through the woman uh, Mary must come the savior of man and we're going to see this beautiful symmetry that the scriptures articulate laid out for us but only if we get this nuance right if we let if we let feminism sort of destroy that nuance because we're so worried that the you know the woman's going to come out looking worse than the man or something then in giving up that which is foolish and wrong, by the way, but um, we're going to give up that, and thus we're going to give up the intricacies and beauty of the symmetry of salvation. So we want to get these things right. We want to, and, and if ever they strike us as somehow being misogynistic or something, the question we need to ask ourselves is: Well, God wrote it. Is He misogynistic? No. God made man and woman in His image. Is He misogynistic? No. Okay. So let us humble ourselves and quiet our little inner feminists and submit to the word of the Lord and see what beauty He has for us. 
Okay, because ontologically, there's no superiority of man over woman, not in the least. But there is an ordering of creation, an ordering of the fall, and an ordering of salvation that are all woven together in the most beautiful, intricate, unimaginable way. And it's all revealed to us in the scriptures, if we'll only let God speak. So um, we want to we want to see that nuance here as well as we pass through these words. And so, yes, the devil is at work and he is chiefly the culprit. And this, by the way, the uh, church fathers speculate, um, and it is speculation, uh, that this is the reason why there is no hope of the devil turning, uh, because he was not tempted by a greater than he, but simply turned away from God himself, and not only turned away from God, but turned away from God in such a way that he went after the image bearers of God's creation, destroying another race. I think this is an important insight from the church fathers because we can gain a couple things from that. Um, chiefly, then, that why God provides redemption for us is precisely that we were tempted by a greater being and fell on account of his deceit. So God has mercy and compassion upon that. Secondarily, we can get a sense for why it is that the good angels are so involved and so vehemently, are so vehemently opposed to the devil and his work. You know, it's, it's one of their own that brought this whole mess to be. And so they want to do everything within their power to right that mess and fix that mess. It's one of the beautiful things of why when Christ ascends into heaven and the devil and all his evil angels are still there and the devil's accusing the brothers in Christ day and night, hey, look at their sins, all of this stuff. When Christ arises, ascends victorious into heaven, he doesn't kick out the devil himself, but he rather has Michael and the angels do it. And the same thing, there's a parallel in this, because that's their sphere, that's their world, that's their enemy. I have given you, the, you know, Christ, I, Christ, king of the angels, have given you the victory. And, and so off they go, and they, they have that victory in heaven. And then that victory is coming down to earth. Christ is true human being leading us into victory. And it will ultimately be Christ and, um, and through humanity that the devil is kicked out of this realm. And then, then commence the, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so back to the simplicity of the point and the simplicity of the theology. Unbelief comes first. Indeed, that really is the original sin manifest in the eating of the apple. And the eating of the apple, I mean, again, this from an outside view seems like such a petty thing. Like, wow, God's going to bring all this misery upon us because we ate an apple, he said not to eat. Okay, no. What is actually going on here? Adam and Eve, as Wolf Miller says, are sitting in judgment over God and judging what he says to be false. So they have a, I mean, this is, this is purest and crassest idolatry. They are sitting themselves on the throne above God. And that's really the, I mean, all of that's just sealed when they bite the apple. But this profound idolatry, this profound unbelief comes first, then the biting of the apple. It's, we don't know it wasn't an apple. So whatever fruit it was, what would it be? Hmm. Probably one of those really, really deceptive uh, plums. You know what I'm talking about? The pl kind of plum, like it looks so perfect and you bite into it and there's like that hint of just glorious, sweet juiciness. And then by the time you're done, what remains in your mouth? The bitter, nasty outside. And so you're left with this just 
tannic taste in your mouth and your tongue's all dried up even though it's sour. Yeah, so my speculation is it's a plum. No, <laughs> kind of teasing, kind of teasing. Yeah, okay, so dead in our trespasses. And then Wolf Mueller's point, and so were you. Let's go a little further in the text. The crunch of the fruit was the sound of the universe breaking. It was the song of the devil's coronation, the beginning of the reign of death. Gosh, and if by eating we fell, how are we going to be restored? By eating. And that's, this is the origin of the Lord's Supper. We fell by eating from a tree. How are we going to be restored? By eating from a tree. What hangs upon the, the new tree? The tree of life, which is the cross of Jesus, is body and blood. So you can see that, you know, you can see God's infinite wisdom and beauty here. We fell by eating from a tree. We shall be forgiven, be saved by eating from a tree. Wolf Mueller continues, this is original sin. Adam and Eve's disobedience affected more than this first couple. Their sin sent shockwaves through the entire creation, even into the future. All the children born of Adam and Eve are born with their sin and their rebellion. We inherit their fall. And the key there is that inner rebellion that stuck to the flesh of Adam and Eve is now passed on through their flesh into our flesh. And that rebellion against God is that inner rebellion against God is what what will properly be defined as original sin in theology. Um, the the uh, Latin word that you can use to impress your friends at the next cocktail party, concupiscence. The root of that word is cupid desire. So concupiscence is desire in opposition to that which God gives or to that which God says. So you can see this right now taking place very sadly, very tragically in our society, really in all of the Western world. But here in America, you can see it's like, it's like God says, let there be a family. Ah, we hate families. You know, let there be a man and a woman. Ah, we hate marriage, you know. Let there be a baby that comes forth. We hate babies. Uh, it's just like, I mean, again, there's a, there's a theological problem with this, a huge theological problem. But just as a thought experiment, if God created a world in which homosexuality was the way, what would everybody be doing right now? Bashing it and putting forward heterosexuality. I mean, that's the point of concupiscence, is if God says yes, we say no. God says no, we say yes. It's that inner rebellion uh, that gets that gets passed on. Okay, so let's pick back up on the top of page 60. Original sin does not refer to the original to the origin of sin, but to the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to his offspring. Okay, that's true enough. This is another take on it. There's a twofold take. Original sin does indeed pass on um, in terms of an origin, a physical origin with, held within Adam and Eve, and that gets passed on organically through the process of uh, conception and birth. There is also a, a juridical sense in which we can look at this, a second sense in which we can look at this, and that's what Wolf Mueller is doing right here. Um, 
the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to his offspring. Okay, because again, why? If we're all unique individuals having our own complete autonomy apart from the human race, then this is manifestly unfair. You know, just because somebody else murders someone doesn't mean I've murdered someone and I need to sit in jail for the rest, right? But again, the problem is the premise. We're not autonomous and individual as we think. We're a collective whole. So the sin of the head is imputed to the whole body. You know, if you say, if you rob a bank with your, with your hand, you know, with my hand I took the money, you don't get to say it's my hand's fault, just punish my hand and the rest of me goes free. You see? Um, so, so as it goes for one, so it goes for the whole. There's an organic wholeness that takes place here. And then sin passing on through that organic wholeness of humanity. Okay, Wolfmuller continues, it also refers to the corruption of man's nature. And this is really the other side of the coin, and the side of the coin I've been talking about primarily. The corruption of man's nature that occurred when sin entered, and that inheres in the human will and inclinations. Right, that's concupiscence. The human will is turned against God. The inclinations of man are turned against God. And you, I think you can see this rather profoundly if you think in two different ways. In one sense, maybe the opposite of love is hate. Do you see men hate God? Yeah, you see that. But maybe a more accurate opposite of love is not hate, because that still embodies within it some care. The true opposite of love would be indifference. And so indifference toward God and the things of God is maybe even a more pure manifestation of the hatred of God. Luther somewhere says, and he's not alone in this at all, um, that those who hate God the most passionately, of, of those who, are, who do not believe in God, those who hate him most passionately are the closest to entering the kingdom. They're at least taking God seriously, and God's word has so pricked their hearts that something is going on there to elicit this vehement reaction. Or they've seen the world as it is. They've seen God as he is apart from Christ. They are actually closer to the kingdom than those who are out there, again, to borrow from Luther's imagery, like cattle. They don't lift their heads up to the heavens. They've got their heads down to the earth, and their only concern in life is the next clump of grass. Completely and utterly indifferent to God and to the blessings he gives and bestows. That is, in fact, a more spiritually deadly position further from the kingdom than one who is vehemently opposed to God and consciously hates him. Okay, I see a hand. Uh, the inheritance that we got from uh, Adam, is this the is this a fulfillment of what of the first commandment that God cursed us because the wicked parents that hate that hates him and he will curse until three or four generations? Mm. Mm. Yes, certainly. Certainly. Um you, yeah, you want to reflect on that because even though that so if you if you analyze what, what was the original sin, as we said? Okay, there's this idolatry of I know better than God. But there's also this, this distrust of God. I mean, therein lies the idolatry. The essence of the idolatry is this distrust of God. 
He is in fact holding out on us. If we eat this, we shall be like him, and he doesn't want this. So these were the lies that, that at least Eve gripped hold of. And in that, in that idolatry, um, what's, the, what's the root of it? I mean, put yourself in God's shoes for a minute. What's the root of it? The root of it is, you didn't believe me. You didn't believe me. So then it's no surprise when in the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This is who I am. This is what I've done for you. In that, in that specific biblical case, I have rescued you from the Egyptians, brought you through the sea on dry ground. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What, what is the essence of the first commandment? It is the command to be restored to Eden. When I, when I speak, believe me. I'm your God. You're not my God. I'm your judge. You're not my judge. I speak and it's to be believed. That's the essence of the first commandment. Now, what is, what does the first commandment do? Of course, it lays out for us God's will for us. And we understand this as Christians. We want nothing more than to fulfill the first commandment. But that first commandment also really shows us the true nature of our sin. And so even though God is good to us and does everything good for us and gives us everything we have, we still find within ourselves a distrust for him a dislike for his word, an inability to natively, naturally trust him. Then what is the essence of, what does it mean to be reborn into Christ and to be baptized into Christ and to have this new life and become a new creation? I mean, that's the essence of faith. And that's why faith in all of God's, uh, art, the articles of the faith, why this is such a growing process and why God lays this out. It's also, by the way, where not a single article of Christianity makes any sense. When you really thoroughly understand it, it will bring your reason to its limitations. You'll say, I don't understand how it can be this and this. Bingo. You've got the fullness. Now believe. Why does God set it up that way? Precisely because he wants to be believed. Because it was our critical thinking and reason that got us into this mess. When we asserted that over God. So he's saying, you've got to drop that and believe on me the same way that Adam and Eve believe. The same way that little children believe. You know, and I love that because if you've ever had little kids, you get it. You teach them the truth and they believe it. They don't sit there and say, well, actually, Father, I no, that's adults that do that. Little children go, oh, that sounds right. Or, oh, I've got a question about that. Or how, how could that be true? Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, I believe that. You know, ask, ask a little kiddo running around this church. They believe. They believe. It's just, it's wonderful. That's the image and model unless you turn and become as one of these unless you simply are like Adam and Eve before the fall, unless you have this childlike innocence where you go, my mind doesn't comprehend, my reason is at its limitations, but you have said, therefore I believe. Here again, Augustine's profound wisdom, believe in order to understand. Receive it as a child, accept it as your own, and then he will grant you the wisdom to understand how that can be so. But it's not crass. And, and, and if you want the proof text for all of this, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh the first few chapters, particularly, I think, chapter 1. And it will proof text you through, through all this. It'll take you in, in Paul's unique approach to this question. Okay, so with just our, with just our last few minutes here, um, did, we have an, did we have another question, please? Okay, all right. So just analyzing again this bracketed statement, we see two sides of this. Original sin does not refer to the original sin, but to the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to his offspring. So that imputed guilt, this is juridical framework. It's great, it's biblical. And then it also refers, this is the other side of the coin, to the corruption of man's nature that occurred when sin entered. 
and that inheres in the human will and inclinations. And that's where we've been spending most of our time. Both sides of the coin are true. It is, quote, the chief sin, and this is, this is on an individual basis. You can even think of this if you want. I mean, this permeates the entire plant, as it were. Every leaf, every stem. The chief sin, which is a root and fountainhead of all actual sins. This is going to be a great line. I think Wolfmuller brings it out in his, in his text, but it's a fantastic line to just commit to memory. Um, in general, American Christianity looks at this. looks at it this way. I sin, and therefore I am a sinner. But what is, what is this theology? What is the Bible's theology? I'm a sinner, therefore I sin. I'm a bad tree, therefore I bring forth bad fruit. Right? You don't work the other way. Working the other way doesn't make any sense. Oh, there's a, there's bad fruit, this must be a bad tree. Or, oh, I sin, therefore I'm a sinner. No, this is a backwards way of thinking, a non-biblical way of thinking. It actually opens up a number of, of possibilities for great theological errors to occur. So we begin with this teaching, I am a sinner, therefore I sin. I am a sinner, therefore the good I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, there, there that I do. Okay. So this... Um, you know, this core of, of what I am as a fallen human being, as a sinner. And of course, this is the, this is the essence and foundation of what we confess every Sunday here at Faith and in the Lutheran Church. I, a poor, miserable sinner. Okay? So it begins with this teaching of, I am a sinner, therefore I sin. Who can save me from this body of death? Only Christ Jesus, my Lord. Only through the destruction of my flesh and my resurrection can I ever become that which I presently am not. A saint in the fullest sense of the world, not only with Christ's imputed righteousness, but then with an ontological righteousness that is mine in Christ. And that is indeed what we'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, well, let's pause there for today. This is important because, as we've said, this is really, uh, you know, you can approach this diamond from any, any one of its facets. But when you start there, you are laying the foundation for what's to come, and that's what we're doing here. That's why we're taking our time with it. The Lord be with you.